Luke chapter 10, verses 17 through 24. The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. At that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you see and did not see them, and to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, what a joyous passage. One that furnishes us with many reasons to rejoice. I pray, Lord, that the joy that is the Christians would be evident all about us. Please challenge us with this truth this morning, Lord. May you be glorified. May you change all of our hearts. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, we considered the sending out of the 70 or 72 in Luke 10 and noted five imperatives which undergird genuine Christian ministry. We're looking at the fact that Jesus' ministry expanded in, at a moment which, in which persecution was at an all-time high. We noted five imperatives, that we must be earnest, that we must be ready, that we must be wise, that we must be confident, that we must be faithful. Well, this morning, I want to pick up right where we left off last time. We're not provided with a play-by-play detailed account regarding the activity of the 70 or the responses that they received while they were on mission. And much to the chagrin of modern concern for to be able to quantify ministry success, we're not told any specific numbers of the people who responded favorably to the proclamation of the kingdom of God. We don't know how many towns they actually went to. We don't know how many people were actually healed or converted. And we don't know how much persecution was encountered. All that we're provided with is the fact that the 70 or 72 returned to Jesus, and they returned to Jesus with joy. And they give a report back to their master, back to their Lord. They say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. The disciples are stoked. They're fired up. I mean, they're hot off a spiritual high, right? They've just gone out from Jesus and done ministry in his name. They've engaged in visibly successful ministry, and they're filled with joy. 
And what they experience went beyond their expectations, as is noted by the one statement we have from them, their one statement report that's recorded for us to look at. They say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. It's interesting that when Jesus commissioned the twelve, among the things that Jesus specifically told them that he was giving them authority and power over was over the demons. He told them, I give you power to heal the sick, power over demons, as well as then given the mission also proclaiming the, the coming of the kingdom. When he commissions the 70, which we looked at last time, you'll note two elements there, healing of the sick, proclamation of the kingdom, but you don't see anything specifically mentioned there regarding authority over demons, which I think gives us reason why these guys come back and they're just utterly surprised. Because one thing that Jesus didn't specifically mention is that also he was granting them authority over the demons. I explain why they say to Jesus, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They're excited. They're surprised. They're uh, at an all-time high in spiritual ministry. The rest of the text that we look at here this morning centers around Jesus' response to their joy. They're joyful. They're excited that even the demons are subject to them in Jesus' name. The rest of the text before us is how Jesus responds to this report and to their joy. And there are several layers of Jesus' response here that we need to consider in turn. Um, Jesus makes an announcement regarding Satan's fall. Let's look at that. Jesus declares the authority and protection that he's given to his disciples. He also calls for his disciples to modify the source of their joy, to consider what is the basis for their joy. He makes a modification or correction, which we need to look at. Jesus also himself here rejoices in the Holy Spirit. He praises God the Father in particular for God's work of election, which we'll look at together. Jesus then declares his unique relationship that exists between him, God the Son, and between God the Father. And denotes that he alone has the ability to also reveal the Father to others. And then he explains that the disciples seeing and hearing what they have should be considered a tremendous blessing from God. This is a unique passage in our gospel harmony for a couple of reasons. For one, it seems as if the content of this little, what they call pericope, or this little passage of scripture, it seems like as if it should have come out of John's gospel. <laughs> it sounds so much like John's writing. Many people have even said this is like a, a bolt out of the synoptic blue. John comes... You know, roaring into the synoptic blue, as some people have commented. It sounds so much like John's gospel. Material is very much like things that we find in John's gospel, especially Jesus' joyous praise unto God the Father. We're, we're given a glimpse into inner Trinitarian joy in this text. And it's quite a wonder to behold. Passages such as these show that the synoptic Gospels, the seen together Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have similarities to John's Gospel as well. As well as, as, as much as we can say that John's Gospel is unique and distinctive in a number of ways, recognize that there are passages within the synoptic Gospels that do have similarities to John's. As a matter of fact, I think John's Gospel, John chapter 17, the Jesus' high priestly prayer, is a much longer exposition of one of Jesus' prayers. But we get a glimpse into that very prayer life of Jesus here in Luke chapter 10. And it's part of his response to the disciples' joy. Very, very interesting connection here. Especially when in John 17, verse 
uh, 13, there's this really interesting connection where Jesus longs that his disciples may have his joy, Jesus' joy, made full in themselves. This is one of the things that Jesus prays for to have his heavenly father regarding his disciples. And then here what we find in Luke 10 is Jesus correcting the source of these disciples' joy. He not only redirects his disciples' joy, but he exemplifies the joy that he calls his followers to, that they would find deep joy in God himself. And we'll see this more in a few minutes. There's another unique element, though, here. You have to recognize that this is a fascinating passage because we know that Jesus, in his earthly ministry, was, as Isaiah prophesied, despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus came to identify with our weakness. He was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. He emptied himself. He took the form of a bondservant. He was made in the likeness of men. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In John 11:35, we're told that Jesus wept at Lazarus' tomb. We're told in Luke 19:41 that Jesus wept over all of Jerusalem. Jesus would be persecuted by religious leaders. He would be rejected by Israel. He'd be betrayed by Judas, denied by Peter, abandoned by his disciples, and forsaken by his father at his crucifixion. Jesus' earthly ministry was one of deep grief and deep pain. He certainly fulfilled the role that Isaiah put forward in Isaiah 53 of the suffering servant. But does this mean that Jesus was plagued by depression? Not at all. Hebrews 12.2 tells us that Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, endured the cross, despising the shame How? Why? Through what means? For the joy set before him. You see, Jesus was able to endure persecution and trials and suffering and shame and insults and rejection and betrayal and abandonment and death for the joy set before him. And here in the text before us, we get a rare glimpse at this joy unplugged. We get to see Jesus express the joy that fuels his ministry. We're told in Luke 10, 21, at that very time, Jesus rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit. And he said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth. What a fantastic moment. It's as if we've been granted a front row seat to hear what was behind the consideration of Jesus' own ministry. What considerations fueled Jesus' earthly ministry. This joy was the fuel behind Jesus' actions. And I dare say that you will never truly understand Christianity until you understand this joy. If you don't get Jesus' joy, then you don't get Christianity. Conversion. Let me defend that statement. Conversion, entering the kingdom of God. It doesn't occur, I'm telling you, it will not occur until this joy has overcome you. You will not come fleeing away from sin and the allurements of this world to Christ until this joy has grabbed a hold of your heart. In the midst of telling several kingdom parables, Jesus says in Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. 
which a man found and hid again, listen, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Note that it is upon apprehending the surpassing value of the thing sought that makes selling everything else a privilege and not an offense. It's not a begrudging thing to get rid of a bunch of rubbish and trinkets to gain that which has supreme value. When we read that story of a man finding a treasure in the field, no one goes, oh, how dare he sell everything else that he has to get the field. Obviously, go get the field. And he does it not begrudgingly, but with great, say it, joy. With great joy. It's for joy over the kingdom that we can count all else as rubbish that we might gain Christ. The gospel is not a message of lay down all of your stuff and then come after Jesus and you'll find joy. It's God will invest in your life a tremendous joy which causes everything else to pale in comparison with the excellencies of Jesus Christ. Jesus explains in John 15:11, the things I have spoken to you these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you, that my joy might be in you. Listen, and that your joy may be made full. And I think there's a direct connection between those two statements. The only possible way that your joy will be full is if Jesus' joy is in you. Your joy will be made full when Christ's joy is found in you. Perhaps this has been said no better than by St. Augustine, who lived in the 4th century A.D. When he spoke of his path to Christianity, he explained in the context of prayer to God, the following. I began to search for a means of gaining the strength I needed to enjoy you. But I could not find this means until I embraced the mediator between God and men, Jesus Christ. Augustine explained that the key to his own conversion was gaining the strength to enjoy God. Note that. He said, what I needed was to gain the strength to enjoy God. For those of you who are familiar with Augustine and his famous confessions, that book is full of, of his struggle um, and tells, tells about his conversion. In particular, he struggled with sexual sin. And so one of the things he's directly appealing to here is my conversion came at the moment where my enjoyment of God surpassed all other joys. All other joys appeared as rubbish in comparison with the joy that I find in God. What must transpire in salvation is for God by His sheer grace to grant a man supreme joy in God Himself. Commenting on Augustine's thought, John Piper explains, So saving grace, converting grace, in Augustine's view, is God's giving us a sovereign joy in God that triumphs over all other joys and therefore sways the will. The will is free to move toward whatever it delights in most fully. 
But it's not within the power of our will to determine what that sovereign joy will be. So what Augustine said is this. A man's free will indeed avails for nothing except to sin. If he knows not the way of truth, and even after his duty and his proper aim has become known to him, unless he also takes delight in and feels a love for it, he neither does his duty nor sets about it nor lives rightly. Now, in order for such a course might engage our affections, God's love is shed abroad in our hearts, not through the free will which arises from ourselves, but through the Holy Ghost who is given to us. What Augustine is saying is this, my free will is really good at finding anything else other than God to invest itself in. Yes, you'll truly throw yourself into whatever joy you might find for yourself, whatever fleeting happiness you might find but the free but free will isn't able to birth within our hearts and souls a desire a craving a joy in god himself and in god alone so he quotes from romans 5 5 and says what's required here is for the holy spirit to give a love for god into our hearts from which now we find our joy in god and god alone god must give us affections for himself There are many searching for joy today, aren't there? Many are looking for happiness. Many are ultimately not finding it. Piper, who quotes Augustine, explains the following. I'm not alone in this desire for for happiness, nor are there only a few who share it with me. Without exception, we all long for happiness. All agree that they want to be happy. They may all search for it in different ways, but all try their hardest to reach the same goal, that is joy. This is a great common ground for doing evangelism in every age. Deeper than all felt needs is the real need, God. Not just God experienced without emotional impact, but rather God experienced as holy delight. Augustine says, you made us for yourself. And our hearts find no peace till they rest in you. This peace is the presence of a profound happiness, a profound joy. He is happy who possesses God. Not because God gives health and wealth and prosperity, but because God is our soul's resting place. To make this known and this experience through Jesus Christ is the goal of evangelism and the goal of world missions. You see, when you put it that way, and you understand what's fueling the Christian life, joy in the Christian life is not optional. It's the bedrock, it's the fountain of true Christian living. It's deep joy in God Himself that is the starting place and resting place of Christianity. A Christian without joy is a contradiction of terms. But certainly at times our walk as Christians may suffer because we fail to keep our greatest and deepest joy first. There are times when we may lose our first love as the church in Ephesus was chastised for. We may allow lesser joys to crowd out the greater and greatest joys. Again, Augustine explained, He loves thee too little, 
who loves anything together with thee, which he loves not for thy sake. In case you don't follow what he means by that, he illustrates. It's a great illustration. Suppose, brethren, a man should make a ring for his betrothed, and she should love the ring more wholeheartedly than the betrothed who made it for her. Certainly, let her love his gift, but if she should say, the ring is enough, I do not want to see his face again, what would we say of her? The pledge is given to her by the betrothed, just that. In his pledge, he himself may be loved. God, then, has given you all these things. Love him who made them. That's what he means by when we love the things rather than the giver of the things, there is a tragic misappropriation of love. And when we find joy in lesser things, there's a tragic misappropriation of our reason for rejoicing. Here's the question that I want you to ponder this morning. Does joy mark your life? Is your life marked by joy? And not just any joy, but the joy of Jesus. The joy that fueled Jesus' ministry. This doesn't mean you won't experience grief. This doesn't mean you won't experience suffering in this fallen world, as even evidenced by Jesus' own life, right? But are you uniquely marked by deep and rich joy? When you consider your life, do you find your daily experience to be one of true, deep, genuine, lasting joy? If the answer to that question is no, the first thing I have to check with you is, are you a Christian? Because those who are in Christ have a source, a reason to rejoice in all circumstances. But I also think it is possible for those who have been redeemed to have substituted lesser joys for the great and supreme joy. Therefore, finding where those joys come to an end, find themselves always on an up and down spiritual progression because their joy is as fleeting as the momentary joy they're finding in this momentary fleeting Joy, joy giving thing. But if our joy is found in that one, that great supreme joy, who is himself unchanging and immutable and a fountain of all joy, then the Christian life, the genuine Christian, can always have joy at all times. And this is the reason why we can speak of contentment in all circumstances. This is why we can speak of joy even in the midst of tears, because there is a deep reality of joy that undergirds genuine Christianity. I want to consider three reasons for joy from Luke 10 in a sermon entitled Reason to Rejoice. I think there are many reasons that can be given for a person to rejoice. And I want to trek through this text in the following way. First point is reason for great joy, and that is victory over Satan. There's reason for great joy in victory over Satan. The second point we'll look at is reason for greater joy. Reason for greater joy. That we've been granted citizenship in heaven. And the third point is reason for greatest joy. That of delight in God himself. First let's consider reason for great joy. Victory over Satan. We see this in verses 17 through 19. The disciples have come back to Jesus. They've seen Jesus' own ministry. In which he has demonstrated power over the demonic realm. There were many who were afflicted and possessed by demons. Whom Jesus healed. Jesus provided many proofs of the authenticity of his ministry. He manifested power over nature, 
over sickness, over disease, over death, over demons, over sin. Jesus continually demonstrated, not only did he preach the kingdom of God, but he gave those who were around him a glimpse into the kingdom of God. A tiny, it's almost like a crack in the opening, as they could look in and see the realities of the kingdom of God. We know that ultimately, sickness and disease and troubles from nature and death and demons and sin will all be taken care of, ultimately. As we look forward to the final state with our Lord in the new heavens and new earth. But Jesus, during His preaching ministry, not only proclaimed the coming of the kingdom of God, but provided a glimpse into its power. So when Jesus then appoints his disciples and apostles to go out and do ministry, it's not all that surprising that he would give them not only a message to deliver, but also equip them with tools that would serve to authenticate that they were truly speaking God's message. The Lord has worked in similar ways throughout history, at times of special revelation. The prophets were often given signs to perform along with a message to proclaim. Because remember, as God's people, if you wanted to test whether or not this guy's message is actually from God, you had at least two tests to make, right? First was, does what he say actually come to pass? If he's making prophetic statements that are going to happen in the future, do they actually come to pass? Do we see these things actually occurring? And then secondly, do we see that his message is in uh, complete agreement with what we know from the Scriptures already? Jesus would test his people on both bases. And so... We see God often providing his servants with proofs regarding the message that they were bringing. So the 70 or 72 are overjoyed by their abilities when when working in Jesus' name. Even the demons are subject to them. But Jesus responds with a somewhat matter-of-fact statement, perhaps almost amounting to, of course, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. I've given you power over all of the enemy. These serpents and scorpions have become a question for some, especially in modern context where there have been some cults that have had like snake handling as part of their worship practice. Uh, They'll point to a text such as this or a debatable ending of Mark's gospel, and they'll usually make big deals of this. I think it becomes very evident just in the immediate context as well as the overarching context that serpents often is a reference to Satan. Scorpions here is a unique situation. But we see the next phrase there, and over all the power of the enemy. I think that all of this is pointing to the fact that Jesus is saying, I've given you power over Satan and all of the fallen angels that go along with him, all of the, the demonic host. Note that this authority and power is derivative. They don't just have it. They have been given it from Jesus. And they rightly do say, we have power over them in your name. So there's even a recognition here. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name name we can certainly understand the disciples feeling joy over such an experience have you ever been able to engage in just daily ministry weekly ministry perhaps you've shared the gospel with someone perhaps you have experienced the joy that follows such moments such opportunities to share the gospel of jesus christ with someone else These disciples were being used as tools of the Lord to bring deliverance to those enslaved to demons. And it seems reasonable that these missionaries would find spontaneous joy, which came from this unexpected huge success. 
this is kind of akin to why it's really fun to have missionaries from the mission field come back and tell us about what's been happening, right? They just kind of, their enthusiasm is infectious, isn't it? This is really how it is in Christian service. There is a true and genuine joy that comes from serving the Lord. Jesus goes on, though, to say, not only do you have authority and power over the demonic hosts, but I'm providing you with protection and I'm preserving you. He gives this blanket assurance. He says, and nothing might ever hurt you. Nothing might ever hurt you. Now, certainly, as we consider that statement, it doesn't mean that Jesus' followers will never see difficulties of any sort. As a matter of fact, according to church history, besides Judas, who hung himself, and John, who dies of old age in exile, all the rest of the twelve are martyred, are martyred. Jesus just said, what? And nothing might ever hurt you, harm you? Obviously, we have to recognize what Jesus is saying here, that he has a spiritual direction in mind for these words. Jesus said in Matthew 10, don't fear those who can kill the body or are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You see, for those who are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation, Romans 8.1. And nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 8.39. God protects and preserves his children. It makes me think of the Old Testament account of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember them? And they're being about to be cast into the fiery furnace. And the king said, who's going to deliver you out of my hand? And remember their response is something, my paraphrase is something along the lines of, well, either which way this goes, O king, we'll be delivered out of your hand, right? And we're, we'll gladly lay down our life. We know that's as much as you can do to us. Because our Lord holds us. We're preserved ultimately in the most significant sense. Eternally, we're preserved and protected by him. God protects and preserves his children. Jesus Christ is always with them, even to the end of the age, Matthew 28, 20. He says in John 10, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give eternal life to them. Listen, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Here's great reason for joy, isn't it? Not only that we've been granted power and authority in this life, but we've been granted this assurance, this security that we're protected and preserved by the Lord. There's tremendous joy in God's protection and care over us. We need not fear anyone, for our God is in control. He cares for us, and He ultimately delivers us. Another thing I think we find a great joy in, specifically mentioned here, is that Satan's demise is sure. Satan's demise is a sure thing. We can't neglect this very first statement, the very first words that come out of Jesus' mouth as he responds to the joy of the 70 as they return. He says literally, I was seeing Satan having fallen from heaven as lightning. I was seeing Satan having fallen from heaven as lightning. Now, there are two main ways that that phrase can be understood. It's a little bit of a cryptic phrase. It's been debated back and forth as to how this uh, phrase should be interpreted. There's a slightly different application depending upon how you interpret the phrase. But the overarching statement, the overarching major point is consistent regardless. And I'll demonstrate that here. The first way this phrase could be understood is that Jesus is reminiscing 
about Satan's fall from heaven prior to or in conjunction with the uh, events of the Garden of Eden. If this is the case, Jesus is bringing this up to say to his disciples, beware that you don't fall into the same trap as Satan did, who boasted in himself rather than in God, who became prideful and desired to exalt his throne above God's. Interesting connection to our Sunday school here this morning. We looked at one of the the chapters we had was Isaiah 14. We considered the language there found uh, where Isaiah is speaking to the king of Babylon. And all of a sudden the language becomes a little bit more lofty as this uh, rebuke goes on to say, How have you fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn? You have been cut down to the earth. You have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Which is another text in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 28, where again we have the same sort of scenario going on here. The king of Tyre is being rebuked. And in the midst of that discussion, all of a sudden, the language gets high and lofty. The description of this individual being in Eden, in the garden of God, the anointed cherub who covers, whose ways were blameless from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. And again, at the end of that passage, I cast you to the ground. Some people read this statement from Jesus in this regard, that Jesus is bringing up the fall of Satan. Well, why would he do this right after they've Show joy and say, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Some read this next phrase from Jesus as causing the disciples, his intention was to cause the disciples to rethink their source of joy here. That they ought to cease and desist from glorying in their spiritual accomplishments. Because that's to follow Satan along the path to destruction. And that final judgment will come swiftly, even like lightning, as Satan fell from heaven like lightning. One people, one way people have understood this phrase. The other way that it can be understood is that Jesus is granting the 70 his perspective of their isolated occurrences while out in ministry. This would be a more positive way of viewing Jesus' words in response to them. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is, while you were out casting out demons from this person and that person, proclaiming the coming of the kingdom, healing people's sicknesses, while that was happening, what I was observing was Satan fallen from heaven. In other words, that the suddenness of now God's kingdom coming up on the stage and the advancement of God's kingdom and God's cause is causing and is being pictured with the idea of the fall of Satan. If that's the interpretation, Jesus is speaking positively to the disciples' joy. He's affirming their work, but he's contextualizing it in the bigger picture. He's saying, not only do you have isolated occurrences of this demon being cast out or this demon being dealt with, but I'm seeing Satan's kingdom falling as my kingdom is advancing. I, I like this interpretation as well for another reason. It, it's good to uh, consider ministry in light of the bigger picture. You know, it's kind of like this micro view and a macro view of things. You, know, you take microeconomics and then you take macroeconomics, right? Um, there's, a, there's an importance to looking at something in its particular details. And then it's also important to take a step back and see the bigger picture. And so in ministry, it's like this. You're going to deal with people on an individual, one-by-one basis. You're going to give them personal attention. You're going to consider their situation and their relationship with the Lord. And yet then you can step back from a whole lot of work and consider what is God doing 
on the big stage? What is the bigger context into which this small thing is occurring? These are the sorts of statements we make when we say, well, I shared the gospel, the person didn't come to faith, but I planted a seed. Right? When we say things like that, what we're saying is, I'm not the end-all, be-all of this person's potential conversion. I'm a step perhaps along the way, and God's kingdom is advancing, and the devil's is retreating. God has already revealed what will be the fate of the devil. You know, either way you interpret this passage, everyone agrees with this, that ultimately Satan is defeated. His time of rebellion is limited. Final judgment for Satan is coming. And Christ is victorious. He's already won. The devil is already defeated. We're told this in Revelation 20, verse 10. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And it is right, amen, it is right for us to find great joy in that thought, right? It is right for us, it is good for us to find joy in that thought. But second, let's note reason for greater joy. Because there is reason for even greater joy. Citizenship in heaven. Verse 20, right here at the heart of this whole text, really important little verse. Jesus says, nevertheless... In this do not rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names have been written in heaven. Jesus directs his followers to a greater joy. They've been included in heaven's roster. Now the concept of a book with names in it is is a a Near Eastern cultural historical reality. Uh, A lot of kings would would enjoy listing the names of their subjects in these big books. Probably a good example of this is the census that's even taken when Jesus is born, right? Remember, Caesar Augustus calls for a census, and Joseph and Mary have to travel back to their, uh, their hometown, right, in order to engage in this census, this decree that the census would take place all, all the way across the Roman world. We see this as a theme common, though, not only to the culture of that time, but common to the Scriptures. Paul says in Philippians 3.20 that our citizenship is in heaven. And then just a little bit further in that same book, in Philippians 4.3, he describes those who are his fellow workers as those whose names are in the book of life. Our citizenship is in heaven. Those who are fellow laborers in the gospel have their names written in the book of life. Hebrews 12.23 refers to the general assembly and church of the firstborn as enrolled in heaven. (laughs) We've been enrolled in heaven, if you're a Christian. And considering the works of the wicked, the Psalms, the Old Testament, Psalm 69.28 said this, May they be blotted out of the book of life. And speaking of the final judgment in Revelation 20, verse 15, he explains, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus says, whatever joy you're experiencing from finding success and victory over the demonic host, the authority that I granted you for this thing, understand this, there is greater joy to be found in knowing that our names have been written in heaven must have been the impetus for the old hymn when the roll is called up yonder listen to the verses of that hymn when the trumpet of the lord shall sound and time shall be no more 
and the morning breaks eternal, bright and fair. When the saved of earth shall gather over on the other shore and the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. On that bright and cloudless morning when the dead in Christ shall rise and the glory of his resurrection share, when his chosen ones shall gather to their home beyond the skies and the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. Let us labor for the master from the dawn till setting sun. Let us talk of all his wondrous love and care. Then when all of life is over and our work on earth is done and the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. You see, this is where we find greater joy. It's in knowing that our names have been written in heaven, that we've been granted citizenship in heaven, that our name is on that roll. And when that roll is called up, we'll be there. Our name will be there and we will be ushered into an eternity of joy with our great God. And as a result, if that greater joy has captured your heart, then you're going to beware of boasting in anything but Christ. All arrogance is must be a way to humble joy. Remember, salvation is completely by God's grace, that grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. Having begun by the Spirit, we're not, we're not now being perfected by the flesh. As we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, we must remember that it is God who is at work in us, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. We may plant, we may water, but it is God who causes the growth. God receives all glory for what He is doing in this. And what a tremendous blessing. What source for greater joy there is here. We must not find greater joy in our working we must find greater joy in God's definitive and effectual work. What He did causes us much greater joy than anything we could ever do. The fact that He's written our names in heaven, that He sent His Son to redeem us, that He sent the Holy Spirit to draw us unto Him, that He's caused us to be born again to a living hope, that He's filled our hearts with love for Him. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Those whose names have been written in heaven, who have experienced and continue to experience this greater joy, will beware of boasting in anything other than Christ. And then secondly, beware of allowing lesser joys to eclipse greater joy. Note this. This is what Jesus is after here. Like I said, there's two ways it could this be handled. In other words, Jesus is either rebuking their previous joy, saying that's not reason for joy at all, this is reason for joy, or he's saying by this contrastive statement that that joy is nothing in comparison with this one. I understand you're pumped about that, but you should be even more pumped about what this is. The fact that your name has been written in heaven, that you've been granted citizenship there. You see, all lesser joys must give way to greater joy. Jesus tells his disciples, that another reason for rejoicing ought to take precedence. That they have their names written in heaven. That this joy will remain even when external results don't look as successful. This will last beyond life in the here and now. We'd all admit there are many wonderful little joys that God sprinkles our lives with, right? I think, I think because he lives, that hymn captures as well. How sweet to hold, second verse, a newborn baby. Anyone been there? How sweet to hold a newborn baby and feel the pride and joy he gives, but greater still the calm assurance 
this child can face uncertain days because he lives. There are wonderful little joys that the Lord peppers our lives with, but none of them can be allowed to surpass this greater joy that we have been included in God's kingdom. Let that thought never, ever fade away from your thoughts. Let that never, ever fade away from your attitude and your perspective toward life. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. And life is worth living just because he lives. Ian Murray tells of a visit that he made to Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous London preacher, who is so influential. You can still read Martin Lloyd-Jones' books. He's got a fantastic book on the um, Sermon on the Mount, which I highly recommend. He's written all kinds of stuff as well, but it's one of my favorites of his. But Ian Murray, who's done a lot of historical biographies of even people who are contemporaries to us, um, had an interaction with Martin Lloyd-Jones as Martin Lloyd-Jones was drawing near to death. Lloyd-Jones was now only able to sit up for an hour or two each day. That was max. And so Murray asked Lloyd-Jones how he was coping since his ministry had become so confined. This is a man who had done so many marvelous things in the kingdom of God. And so he's asking, how do you cope now? Because you're not able to do all the things that you were able to do before. And listen to how Lloyd-Jones responded. Do not rejoice that the demons are subject to you in my name, but rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Then he said, I'm perfectly content. You see, Lloyd-Jones understood that there can be joy that comes from fruitful ministry, but you can never allow it to eclipse the joy that comes in knowing that you're a child of the King, that you've been granted access to heaven, that your citizenship is not here an earthly one, but a heavenly one. But this leads us. We can't end with just greater joy. What about greatest joy? There's reason for greatest joy. And I would say that that greater joy which we spoke to is really just a means to a greater end. Having citizenship in heaven affords us with the opportunity to delight ourselves in God Himself for all eternity. This long we talk about lesser purposes leading to greater purposes, I think these other joys ultimately come to the climactic point in the consideration of this greatest joy, and that is delight in God Himself. Note how Jesus does this for us. He models it for us. Look at verse 21. At that very time, He rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit. And said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. I think, first of all, Jesus demonstrates here delight in God's sovereign grace. Delight in God's sovereign grace. And specifically, what's under picture here is the doctrine of election. Jesus gives praise to the Father for concealing the truths of the gospel from the wise and understanding and instead revealing them to infants, to babes. How incredible that God has revealed his glorious truth and granted eyes to see to those who are weak and despised. This is what you, Jesus is 
exulting in God, rejoicing in God the Father for God's wise providence and decision to reveal these glorious truths to those whom the world considers nothing. Paul picks up on this in 1 Corinthians 1. Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he might nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. And again, that phrase, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. We've noted on prior occasions, we worked through Ephesians 1 very early on in, in, uh, in our time together here, and we've noted on prior occasions that the doctrine of election is one that some people have difficulty with, and so it has caused some to speak of it as if it were an embarrassing doctrine. But that's not the way the Bible speaks about the doctrine of election. Not only does Jesus right here plainly rejoice in this blessed truth, but so does Paul in Romans 9 through 11 and in Ephesians 1. You see, God's act of sovereign grace should elicit pure and unmixed joy from us. We all deserve hell. Why God saves any is a complete mystery to us. We ought to respond with doxology. We ought to respond as Paul does at the end of his discussion of election, predestination, Romans 9, 10, and 11. He gets to the end of chapter 11. He's not, oh man, I can't believe I just talked about this. Oh, I'm sure I've embarrassed a lot of people. Oh, now I'm going to have to kind of back up from this. What does he say at the end of all that? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unfathomable are his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. He responds the same way Jesus does. Jesus exults and rejoices in God to know that God has done this marvelous thing. But not only does Jesus delight in God's sovereign grace, but he also delights in God's sovereign will. Look at the rest of verse 21. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. You see, Jesus found deep joy in the fulfillment of God the Father's sovereign will and plan. He found joy in His Father's plan and will coming to pass. Isn't it interesting when Jesus instructs His disciples on how they ought to pray, He gives them the model prayer, an example prayer that they can make use of to teach them how to pray. Isn't it interesting that in that prayer, I think He notes this very reality. And I can ask this question. You can know if you're finding your deepest joy in God himself, if you can pray this prayer from the heart, not as a meaningless mantra, as a repetitious repetition of words, but as a genuine, heartfelt cry unto God. If your prayers manifest these qualities, then you know that you're finding your deepest joy and delight in God himself. For listen to what Jesus instructs us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Some questions to ask. Do you find peace or do you find fear in the thought of God as sovereign king? Are you able to call God father? Do you long to live in a way that honors, that hallows his name? Do you long to live in a way that shows the respect 
and reverence that you show to almighty, holy God? And do you find pure delight in seeing his kingdom come in seeing his will be done? If you do, you, like Jesus, are delighting in God's sovereign will. Do you receive both good and adversity from God's providential hand? As Job 2.10 exhorts. You see, the fulfillment of God's will and the exaltation of God's glory is in actuality the formula for the greatest creaturely joy we can have as well. When God is glorified, when God is enjoyed, this is our deepest joy. They're not at odds with one another as Piper has made such a ministry of declaring. Those who find this greatest joy delight in God's sovereign grace. They delight in God's sovereign will. And lastly, they delight in God's Son. They delight in God's Son. When Jesus then he declares the unique relationship that exists between Him and God the Father, He says, all that has been handed over to Me by My Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son. And those to whom the Son might wish to reveal Him. Again, this is where I said it at the outset. This is a wonderful glimpse into the joy that exists within the Trinity. And there's a sense in which we'll never grasp this completely. There is perfect unity, perfect ontological equality, perfect love, and infinite joy present within the Godhead. Here we are given just a taste of the sweet delight that the triune God has and enjoys within himself. There can be no greater joy than this. The eternal joy that God himself enjoys in the being of God. In John 17, I think it's another really great text where you get a, a glimpse into that as Jesus prays and speaks about the glory that he had with the Father before all this was made and then the glory that he's going to return to and the glory that he wishes for all those who are in him to share in with him and the Father. Understand that this joy is ultimately just a sharing of the eternal, infinite joy that's found within the Godhead. We rail on this. I don't have to go a big deal about it right now, but it's so important that we have this high and exalted view of God He's not going throughout the universe hoping to find joy somewhere. He is perfectly and infinitely joyful within himself. And what's so glorious about this great God is that he's sharing that joy with others. He wants us to enjoy him as, as our chief joy. But that truly is the greatest joy that we can experience, delighting ourselves in God himself. That's why the greatest, the greatest gift given to man is God himself. The gift of the gospel is God. Getting God is the great gift. And then Jesus pulls his disciples aside. He tells them, Blessed are the eyes, the ones seeing what you see. For I say to you, many prophets and kings wished to see what you see, and they didn't. And many of them wished to hear what you hear, and they didn't. Jesus pronounces this beatitude, blessed are, as a reminder to the distinct privilege that has been afforded to his disciples. He's just gotten done saying, rejoice. The greater joy is found in the fact that your names are written in heaven. So you're, you're privileged with salvation. Find greater joy in that. Find greater joy in that. 
But now he goes a step further to say something distinctive about the time in which these men lived. He says, not only do you have this greater privilege than the lost because you've been included in God's kingdom, but you even have a distinctive privilege over the Old Testament saints. They looked forward to the things that you see. They looked forward to the things that you hear. They wished to hear them. They wished to see them, but they didn't. But you are. You are presently enjoying the very things that all of them were looking forward to. Look at this in John 8, right? Abraham rejoiced to see my day and saw it and was glad. Abraham had a longing, looking forward to Jesus' coming. And now Jesus was there. We had 1 Peter 1 read. I just want to pick up in verse 10. As to the salvation... The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. What a fascinating truth here. Old Testament saints longing to see it. Angels longing to look into it. Here is Jesus. You see, it all is about Jesus. And Jesus is there amidst them. He's saying, you're seeing me. You're hearing me. He reminds us of Simeon, doesn't it, in Luke 2? He says this when he holds baby Jesus. Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. My eyes have seen your salvation. What a moment that must have been for Simeon, huh? He's been told he's going to see the Messiah. And there he is as he holds Jesus in his arms. He says, now, Father, I have seen your salvation. Jesus says, these long to see what you see. They long to hear what you hear. And isn't it incredible that we're included in that blessed state, aren't we? For we who live after the time of Christ, who have the privilege of reading the Bible, of seeing and listening to these very words of Christ. What a glorious reality has been given to us. Now that God has revealed His Son to us, we have even more reason for joy. We have seen and heard God's definitive act of redemption. And we know this, for all eternity, He will be praised for what He has done in this act of redemption. In considering these increasing reasons for joy, victory over Satan, the great joy, citizenship in heaven, a greater joy, and delight in God, the greatest joy, we can obey the Lord's command given to Christians in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. You ever asked or wondered, what is the will of God? What is the will of God? Well, here's a great passage to look at. This is the will of God, that you rejoice always, that you pray without ceasing, and in everything you give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I close with Jude 24 and 25. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now 
and forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this tremendous joy that is that can be partaken of in Jesus. That Jesus' joy can be ours. That our joy can be made full through the joy of Christ being granted to us. Lord, our hearts are wayward. They are prone to waywardness and sin. Lord, we know that what we need is for you to fill our hearts with joy and delight in you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to maintain the greatest joy as truly greatest in our life. We find our greatest joy in the delight, the relationship that we can enjoy with you. We thank you for the blessing of being having our names written in heaven. And we thank you for the blessing of being able to do Christian ministry and service. But it all must rebound to your glory. We pray, Lord, that your kingdom come, that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that your name would be set apart, that our lives would bear witness to the respect and reverence that you are due. I pray, Lord, that obedience to commands, we would understand that. They're, they're not burdensome because there's a joy that inflames our obedience. Lord, remind us that the Christian life is not just a list of to-dos, but it's about relationship with our Savior who transforms our thinking and our, our feeling. Lord, may our relationship with You not be cold and, and heartless, but full of joy and passion. Give us unending joy in You. We thank You that You are an unending fountain of joy. We thank You for the privilege of participating in that joy that is Yours. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.